Well, take your Bibles and turn with me to Hebrews chapter 1 once again. Hebrews chapter 1, as we can just begin in our series on this wonderful book of Scripture and looking together at this first chapter uh, together. Uh, George, uh, Chuck Swindoll had a story in one of his books about a, about a man named George Rodriguez. George Rodriguez was a well-known bandit and bank robber back in the uh, 1800s. He was a Mexican who lived across the border, but he would come across into Texas on a regular basis and rob banks or whatever, take the money back to Mexico, and they couldn't catch him. So they tried and tried to get him, but never could. And so finally they got frustrated, the authorities did, and they they sent out their very best Texas ranger to try to uh, bring uh, George in and get that money back. And he was as good as his reputation. He went out, and he, in a, within a few days, he did find George across the border. And he went down, and he knew he was in a saloon. So he, he barged into the saloon, both guns drawn, and pointed the guns at uh, Rodriguez and said, uh, I've, I've got you now. Uh, you're going to pay that money back, or I'm going to shoot you. And uh, a friend of uh, George was there in the saloon, and he said, um, uh, Friend, uh, this George doesn't speak a word of English. He has no idea what you're saying. But I, I speak Spanish and English, and I will translate for you. So what do you want to say? He said very clearly, he said, look, you either, you either get, tell us where the money is and give it back, or I'm going to fill you full of lead. And so the little Spanish fellow, or Mexican fellow, turned to Rodriguez, and he translated what the ranger had just told him. And so George, knowing that he was caught and couldn't do anything about it, and, and knowing the Texas Ranger was serious, said, uh, okay, here it is. Uh, go south of town. There's a well out there. Remove a few bricks four layers down, and you'll find all the money I've stolen behind those bricks. And so the little Mexican fella, knowing that the Ranger could not speak Spanish and knowing that, uh, that uh, George couldn't speak English, turned to the ranger and said, well, here's what George says. Go ahead and shoot, loudmouth. I'm not giving you the money. So he became a very rich young man. Well, you know, communication's hard, isn't it? Communication's tough in the best of circumstances. When it comes to God, uh, communication with God, understanding God is very difficult for us. Uh, it comes, it's, uh, there's a great problem. God himself is inexplicable. God himself is, is invisible. We don't see him. We don't touch him. Uh, he's past understanding. He's incomprehensible. Uh, the, the Apostle John in, in his gospel, chapter 1, verse 18, said this. He said that no one has beheld God at any time. No one has seen him, no one has known him, no one fully understands him. And it's because of these facts that uh, men and women in this world grope about trying to find something to make them understand life and God. We, they cannot find God and they cannot understand life. And so throughout the world we have people groping and looking for life here and there, trying to worship their gods, trying to understand what they can't understand, trying to find life in themselves. And they find themselves constantly frustrated because they can never come to the place of understanding what life is about, never coming to a place where they understand what God is about, and they, so they spend all their lives in frustration. I believe the, fi- the primary appeal of the book of Hebrews, as we begin our study together, is found in chapter 4, verse 16, in which uh, we're told there that, that, we are, that God wants us to draw near to God through Jesus Christ. And that's going to be our key passage going through. But how do we draw near to someone we don't know? How do we draw near to someone we, we don't understand? How do we draw near to someone we've never seen? 
that is the that is the message of the book of Hebrews. We cannot draw near to someone we don't know. We cannot love someone we don't know. So how can we know who God is? And Hebrews, as well as any book in the Bible, deals with that subject. God has stepped into our world, into our light, in order to reveal himself to us. And the first three verses of this particular chapter tells us how that happens. There are two particular times in history through two different modes or means in which God has spoken to people. The first one is found in verse 1. God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets in, any, in many portions and in many ways. As I said last week, we don't know who the author of Hebrews is and we don't need to know. But we do know he has a message and he wants to get to in a hurry. He doesn't say anything about... Um, about an introduction. He doesn't greet the people. He doesn't encourage the people. He simply says, I have something I've got to get off my chest. I've got to communicate this to you. I've got to tell you this, this truth. And so he jumps right into the revelation he wants to give here. And the first thing he wants to tell us is that we cannot reach God, but God can reach out to us. And the God did that in the Old Testament period through the prophets. That's the means. The time was the Old Testament. The means was through the prophets, and he did that in a variety of ways. There are times he gave prophecies to these individuals. There are times that, that they, they had riddles. There are times they had parables. There were times they gave object lessons. There were times they wrote poetry. There were times they worked miracles. But through these various means, everything that they wrote, everything they said, came from God himself when, when he was speaking through them. So that everything they said was inspired by God, is infallible, inerrant, and true. And all that was true in the Old Testament revelation that we have today. Whatever form, the prophets always delivered that message. In the process then, the curtain was pulled back a little bit so that we could view God. So we can get a glimpse of what God is like. And as you read the Old Testament, and I desperately encourage you to do that, don't ignore the Old Testament like some uh, evangelical leaders today are saying do. Just, it's not pertinent for today. Just kind of skip it. That's a fatal mistake. You must know the Old Testament. Read it periodically. Read a book here and there and pick up on the message of the Old Testament. And as you do that, you'll find out much about God. Read the Psalms and you'll see this intimate relationship he had with his people. And so we have so much that we learn about God there. But there still is a problem. With all that revelation that took place through the prophets in the Old Testament, there's still a mystery. We still do not understand him. We still do not personally know him. It was as if he spoke to us behind a curtain. Some of you might remember that uh, uh, Plato, the old great uh, philosopher, Greek philosopher, gave this story of a cave in which uh, he, he envisioned humanity chained in a cave. And as they're chained in that cave, all they could see in front of them were shadows of people behind them. He, they could hear voices, but they couldn't understand. They saw shadows, but they couldn't comprehend. And that's how he saw life. How do we understand life, Plato wanted to know. And he went on infinitely trying to explain it, but he never could because he didn't have the revelation of God. How do you know one you've never seen? How can you know God? Something is missing. Even the Old Testament revelation is not enough. It's a lot, but it's not enough. Something is missing. In a modern-day scenario, you might liken this to Internet dating. 
uh, a few years ago, uh, people began to have these dating web websites and so forth. And if you were looking for someone, uh, you could go join one of these groups and you could meet up with some people on, on the internet. And if you found somebody you liked, you began to, you know, you began to text to them and email them and have FaceTime with them and whatever else. But if the, but if the relationship progressed, ultimately that was not enough, was it? Ultimately, they wanted to meet face to face. They wanted to see if that picture you sent was real. That, that would be my first question, but uh, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a bit of a skeptic, you know. So, but yeah, they, we want to see face to face. We want to talk. We want to touch. We want to, we want to have a personal relationship, right? And so uh, the Internet was not enough. You need to have that personal encounter. The Old Testament was not enough. We need a personal encounter with God. So something more is needed. And so that takes us to verse 2, where we have now a second time and a second means by which God has re revealed himself to us. It says, in these last days he has spoken to us in his Son. Uh, we need a personal encounter with the living God, and we're going to get that through his Son, through Jesus Christ. Uh, that's, that's our opening statement. I want you to note the words last days. Don't get confused there. The last days began at the incarnation, apparently. Uh, it, it's when the, re the revelation of the Old Testament <clears throat> had been completed, and now the new revelation is coming, first of all through Christ and then through the New Testament epistles. This is not a, last days here does not mean the last months or years before Christ comes back. It's been going on for about 2,000 years now. And so in these last days, he has spoken to us in his Son. Now, I just want to take a little bit of a, a step back and look at this. God says, I want you to get this because it's very rare that anybody gets this in modern-day evangelicalism. God says there was two points of time through two means that he's revealed himself to us, that he has spoken to us. It's very clear, isn't it? In the Old Testament revelation through the prophets and in the New Testament revelation through the Son and, and ultimately, as we see in chapter 2, through, through the apostles. Two times, not three, not four. God is not revealing new revelation today. God is not speaking to you apart from Scripture today. That does not take place. Matter of fact, the last book of the Bible, the last chapter, almost the last words, Jesus himself warns the readers that if you add to the prophecy of this book, or take away from the prophecy of this book, I will add to you the plagues that are in the book. If you've read Revelation, you don't want that. Those are rough things, right? Don't add to the revelation of God. There is no more new revelation given today. And so when you have somebody stand up or write a book and say, Jesus spoke to me and here's what he says and Jesus is calling or whatever else, all these popular books, that's nonsense, it's heresy, it's wrong, it's anti-biblical. Don't fall for it. You've got it all. He spoke to us a second time through his son, and that's what we need, and that's what we're looking at today. One, one commentator said it this way, In Jesus, God has entered humanity. Eternity had invaded time, and things could never be the same again. I like that. Things would never be the same again. Going back to our passage, notice in details here, it doesn't say that he spoke to us by his son. It says he spoke to us in his son. Every word here is important. That's why we're very much taking our time going through this great book. He didn't speak to us by his son. He spoke to us in his son. 
In other words, he is the embodiment of truth. When Jesus was on earth in John chapter 14, verse 6, he says, remember, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He did not say, I've come to give you a message about the way and the truth and the life. He did that. But that's not what it says. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He is the embodiment, embodiment of the way and of the truth and of the life. It's all in him. He's not simply a messenger like the Old Testament prophets were. He is the way and the truth and the life. It was in him, in him. The manager at the St. Louis Cardinals for a time was a guy named Joe Torrey. And when he took over management at the, of the Cardinals, some expert in, in uh, baseball said, you will do a better job of managing if you would leave the bullpen, uh, the um, dugout and go to the sky boxes and watch the game from the, from the top and you can see everything that everybody's doing. But Joe Torre rejected that and says, I, I can't do that. I want to see them. I want to look them in the eye. And obviously, it's a better way to manage. That's what Jesus is doing here. He has come down to look at us right in the eye. He has come down to give us a personal relationship with him. He is the way, the truth, and the life. Going back to John chapter 1 again, verse 14, says this, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. Then in verse 18, he says, No man has seen God at any time, the only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. That, those two verses together tell us this. Jesus Christ came to explain God. The word there is the word exegete. It means to pull out of something. He is he's pulling out the truth about God. He's come to explain God. Without the revelation of Jesus himself, you will never, ever understand God. And so the Old Testament was a secondary revelation, so to speak, a secondary account. It's removed from the personal scene. It speaks of Christ. It gives us wonderful information. Uh, we learn a great deal, but it was not enough. We need to be able to understand who God is personally through Christ. There was a well-known theologian some years ago named Reinhold Neighbor. Some of you may have heard of him. He was an absolute genius scholar. And he wrote like a scholar. You ever try to read scholars? Well, he was one of those. And he wrote in detail. One, one year he decided he was going to write his theological position. And so he sat down and wrote out his, what he believed about the basics of theology, his own personal view of all these things. When he got done, and he was very, not only, well, not only was he a scholar, but he was very verbose, so it was quite a long essay. Uh, he decided to give it to a pastor friend of his to read before he published it. He knew the pastor friend was a smart guy and well-versed in Scripture, but he also knew that he was a practical guy and knew how to speak to normal people. And so he asked his pastor friend to critique it and give him his view. After about a week of reading over this essay, the pastor uh, wrote him back one sentence. He said, I understand, I understand every word you've written, but I do not understand one sentence. That's the way a lot of scholars are. You, you, you know they know their stuff, but you can't understand what they're saying. And that's the way he was. Jesus came that we might understand on a personal level who God is. Not just that we understand about him, but that we understand who he is. 
Now, speaking of the sun here, as we press on, uh, one uh, commentator, Kent Hughes, has an interesting metaphor. He says, this is sort of like sticking a, a diamond up into sunlight, kind of like a prism, and coming out of that sunlight through the prism are seven different rays of beauty. And in our passage that remains before us today, we find that, that Christ is being lifted up, and as the, ray, as the sun, so to speak, shines through, we are getting seven different rays of the beauty of Christ. Seven different facets of the greatness of Jesus Christ. And so he ticks them off beginning in verse 2. He says, In these last days he has spoken to us in his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things. First of all, he is the heir of all things. He, uh, Paul reminds us in Colossians 1.16 that he, he not only created all things, but all things were created by him and for him and through him. Uh, he's the possessor. He's the owner. He's the sovereign ruler then over all things. And I want you to note here, it doesn't simply say he is the heir, but he is appointed heir of all things. That is, he is in, this is in complete harmony with the will of God. That God appointed him as his messenger to the planet, to you and to I. That God so loved the world, he sent his only begotten son, totally in alignment with who with the will of the Father. And secondly, he's a creator of all things. He, he continues on in that, in that verse and says, to whom he made the world. Now, here's what's interesting here. We know he's a creator. John 1, 1, 1 tells us that. He's a creator of all things. But the word for world here is not your normal word for world. It's not the, word, the Greek word cosmos. It is the Greek word aemos. And that word is often translated ages. It is not speaking here just of the, this planet or the people on the planet. He's speaking of the ages, the eons, the time. He's speaking of the fact that God himself, through Jesus Christ, created time. Have you ever thought about that? God is not a creature of, or a being, to say, of time. He, he, is, uh, he is outside of time. He is not boxed in by time. He sets outside of time. He existed before time. He created time. We're creatures of time. He's not. That's important to note because we're starting to get the, the, at least a glimpse of the greatness of Christ himself, the Son. But we're, we're starting to see all the puny views that we might have about Jesus Christ evaporate to, to go away, to, to be dismissed. We come to, to Christ through our, our movies and our novels and our, and our and personal thinking and whatever, and we have this, this very humanized view of Christ. And all that is being dismissed here. Yet, yes, he was human. And the Bible teaches that very clearly. In 1 John 1, 1, John says that, that he is the one that they, the apostles saw with their eyes. He is the one that they beheld he is the one that they touch with their hands. He did all these things. He's the, he's the one who cried in the manger. He is the one who worked with his hands on, in woodwork. He's the one who died on the cross. But now he is being described as the, cre as, as the creator of space and time. How can these things be? But our author is only beginning. In verse 3, we find that he is radiance of God's glory. 
Again, notice carefully the radiance of his glory. Notice there's a distinction here. He is not a reflection of God's glory. He is the radiance of God's glory. That's far more important. You see, a reflection is kind of like the moon reflecting the light of the sun. The moon has no ability to generate its own light. It has to reflect the light of something else. The sun, on the other hand, radiates light because it has a source. Jesus Christ is not a reflector. Jesus Christ is the radiance. He is a full essence of the very nature of God in all of his glory and all that he does. We're told in Scripture repeatedly that as Christians we are to be those who are to glorify God. And that means we reflect His glory. If you're living for Christ today, the highest goal you could possibly have, underneath this, everything else is underneath this, the highest goal you could possibly have is to glorify Christ. That means you reflect His glory by living according to His will, by the fruit of the Spirit, by what God is doing in your life. And as you do that, you reflect His glory. So we're to do that. But Christ is not a reflector. Christ is the source. He is the radiance of the very glory of God. When we behold the sun, we, be, we are bathed in the glory of God. Get that in your hearts and minds. And then He's the exact representation of God. This word exact re representation means, uh, refers to the image on a, of a coin that's been cast by a die. So the coin looks exactly like the die itself. Jesus, therefore, is completely the same in essence as the Father. This is important, especially in light of cults and different ones at that time and today that deny even the deity of Christ. He is the exact representation of God himself. When we see Jesus, we know what God is like. Do you want to know what God is like? Read the Gospels. Go to your Bible every once in a while, periodically, no matter what you're reading in Scripture, and just sit down for a while and read a chapter out of Matthew, or Mark, or Luke, or John, and slowly work through the Gospels. You're getting to see who, what Jesus is like, and in the process, you're seeing what God is like. You want to know God? Look to Jesus. There's no better source, never has been. And then he is the, the sustainer. It says here, he upholds all things. Colossians 1.17 says, in him all things hold together. Same idea. The sun, let me put it this way. The sun is the glue that holds everything together. If he was removed, then the whole universe falls apart. Now, of course, you cannot remove the sun. Uh, he is un, un, he's immovable. But according to his will, he's allowed people to live as if he doesn't exist. He's allowed people to, to re reject him. He's allowed people to live as if he is not the center, centerpiece of the universe. And what happens when people and societies and, and nations do that? All we've got to do is look around. We find our world falling apart because the glue has been removed. And things spiral out of control because there's no glue there. What happens when individuals do that? What happens if, if you or I say, you know, I don't need him. I'll just remove him as the centerpiece of my life. 
what happens? Your world starts to fall apart. That's what happens. You start spinning out of control. Everything loses its, its point. And that's why we have a world today, no matter where you go, where people are just absolutely a mess. Every statistic, every, every survey tells us that the world is, is searching for what it cannot find. And people are an absolute mess. And the solution is not found in better government. It's not found in better social programs. The solution is found only in returning to the glue. <laughs> if I could use that metaphor, returning to putting Jesus Christ at the center of our personal lives and of our world and our societies. A number of years ago, I built a quilt rack. I was doing woodworking, and I did some things. I, I, was, I thought this was my finest piece of art, my, 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 you know, my best. The, best, the best I ever did. I thought it was wonderful. Marsha wasn't always so sure, but, but I, I really kind of, I thought it was pretty cool, and we kept it for quite a while, and she put some blankets on the quilts and different things. A few years ago, maybe two years ago, it, it fell apart. And uh, so uh, I, we put it in the garage, sitting there in the garage right now to this day for two years, ready, ready for me to glue it together. Because the glue, it needs to be re-glued on all of its pieces because it fell apart. I need to re-glue it. For two years, I haven't taken five minutes to go to the garage and re-glue my quilt rack. And so for two years, it is this beautiful piece of art. You won't come over and see it, let me know. It's this beautiful piece of art that has no purpose. It doesn't accomplish anything. It sets like a piece of junk in my garage on a corner somewhere waiting for glue. Now someday, maybe now this afternoon, I will glue that thing back up and it will become useful once again. But until I do, it's just a piece of junk that's falling apart. Well, I think that's a perfect picture of our Lord and Savior. He is the glue that holds everything together. Remove him, and we're just pieces of junk on the floor. Our lives need to be re-glued. And I'm speaking of, of not only our society and unbelievers, but we as Christians, how often do we let the glue dry out like my rack, my, uh, my quilt rack, and let it fall apart? How often do we let that happen? And then, and then we kind of limp along for months or years or longer than that to going nowhere, spiritually speaking, and we know our life is becoming a mess, but we don't do anything about it. Return to the perfect glue, the sustainer of all things. That's who Christ is. But he's more than that. He's also the purifier. Look at the, the rest of this uh, verse here. He goes on down and he says concerning this, he not only holds all things by the word of his power, that when he had made purifications for sins... Uh, this is probably at the heart of the Christian faith, the purification for sins. Uh, uh, to break that down, I'm going to break it down into three chapters to understand it. First of all, the necessity for purification. We need to understand that to purify means to cleanse. And you and I are alienated from God because we are impure. We are stained with sin. We're polluted by sins. Christ has come to draw us to himself and draws near to God, but we can't come into His presence on our own. He must purify us to do so. If we come into the presence of Christ without being purified, you know what happens? Chapter 12, verse 29 of this chapter says, He is a consuming fire. Now remember a few weeks ago in the Old Testament, we saw Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron? They 
they tried to come into the presence of God, these, these, these priests, in a way that God did not prescribe. And what happened? The fire of God consumed them. That's a perfect illustration of what Hebrews is talking about. You try to come into the presence of God without purification and you will be consumed. And therefore you need to be purified and Christ is the purifier, so there's the need. Years ago, I think I've gotten better on this one, but years ago I used to take a, a white shirt like this one and I'd take a pen, I got one somewhere, I'd put it in my pocket and I'd forget to put the cap on. All right, and so I had uh, several. I had a whole signature drawer, uh, closet full of cl white shirts with ink spots on the corner. It just seemed like my shirt, you know. I needed to put the cap on first of all, but once I had made that mess, what needed to be done next? I needed something to remove the stain. There was a necessity if I'm going to wear a nice white shirt when I come to church or wherever. I need to have that stain removed. It looks kind of tacky. They come up here with, you know, looking pretty good. I, like you would all agree with that, right? Without a white, big old blue stain in the middle of my pocket. So there's a necessity of purification. Sin stains, just like that. And so we're stained. Secondly, the second chapter, the inadequate of solutions for purification. The attempts of Religions and people to purify themselves. Every religion is an attempt to purify yourself. It's an attempt to be right with whatever God you believe in. It's an attempt to be right with yourself. But it always fails because we don't have the power for purification. We don't have the power for that. And even in the Old Testament, remember? And we looked at this together a few weeks ago. Even in the Old Testament, the priest, day by day by day, week after week, year after year, went and did sacrifices that could never fully purify the people. It could, it could cover up, but it couldn't purify. And therefore, they kept going back every day and every hour, every hour really, continuously to bring purification of sacrifices before God, but could never fully remove the stain. In my shirt, if I go back to that for just a moment, the stain, I would take those shirts and I would try to clean the stain out before Marsha caught me. And I would clean them up and it never worked. No matter what I did, the stain was still there. Sometimes a lot worse with my efforts. I didn't have what I needed to cleanse that stain. So that leads us to the third chapter and that is the solutions for purification. What is, the, what is the solution? What is the stain remover of sin in our life? The old hymn writer said it this way, What can wash away my sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Nothing can for sin atone? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Not of good that I have done? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. This is all my hope and peace. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. This is all my righteousness. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. And the chorus says, Oh, precious is the flow that makes me white as snow. No other fount I know. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. We have a super duper purifier, if you want to call it that. We have a means whereby our sin stain can be removed. And that's found in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. But wait a minute, we're still not ready to go. Something remains. We're all cleaned up and ready to go, but we're going nowhere. 
We, we, we've been purified, but, but nothing's happening. It's like, like being invited to a fancy dinner. You know, we're all dressed up and ready to go out the door, but our ride never shows up. And so we stay home eating leftovers and watching old reruns instead of going to the banquet. What else do we need? One more thing. One more facet of the greatness of Christ. We need to find out that the, the Son is our high priest. There's one left, one ministry yet identified here. When he had purified sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. He has sat down. I said last week, the high priest and the, and the priest in the Old Testament never sat down when they were ministering because they were never done. It was never finished. But one of the great themes of Hebrews, it is finished. He has he's done all that is necessary to cleanse us from the stain of our sin. And now he sits down at the right hand of the Father. It is finished. He now intercedes for us. He is now our great and glorious high priest. It is finished. In chapter 2, verse 8 of Hebrews, if you go over, he still has more to do. It says, you have put all things in subjection under your feet. Not only is he the great high priest at the right hand of the Father, interceding for us according to chapter 7, and being our great high priest according to chapter 4, but he is also the great sovereign God who has put all things under his feet. Nothing thwarts his will. He's allowing the world to exist as it is now, but one day he will come, and he will bring judgment when he does, and he will set the world aright, and all things will be under his sovereign rule. Go to chapter 4, verse 16. In 4.16, we see this verse I've alluded to two or three times. I, I believe it in many ways, this is perhaps the key verse of the whole book. You get the, everything kind of wraps around this verse, it, going into it or coming out of it. It says, uh, let's back up to 14, just of the context. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has, been, who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Therefore let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. There's our verse. We have a great high priest, and therefore, who is sitting at the right hand of the Father, and therefore we can draw near with confidence to the throne of grace. Everything before, as we saw in the Old Testament last week, everything in the Old Testament kept us at arm's length. The, the, even the tabernacle and the temple were set up. The priesthood was set up so that we really did not draw near. But Jesus has done away with all of that. He has purified us. He has done all this necessary. It is finished. And therefore we are not only able, but we're invited to draw near to God as our great high priest to draw near to the one who can save us. If you're not a Christian, he calls you to draw near. Come unto me, all you that are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. If you're a Christian who are, is struggling with whatever issue you have today, and everyone here has an issue, he's calling us to draw near. He understands. He's there to help us at our greatest times of need. He understands because he is our great high priest who himself has endured so much of what the world threw at him, but he was victorious. This is our Savior. 
This is who we're talking about. This is who Hebrews who, uh, showcases. Even as I've come into this message this morning, I've come with this whole concept that, that I'm trying to proclaim to you the greatest truth that has ever been known. The, the highest of the high. And we're so used to talking about Jesus and so used to singing about Jesus that, that we kind of get numb to it so easily. And so as I come today, I'm thinking here, this is the greatest, the best, the highest ever. And to the extent we grasp this, to that extent we can live as God wants us to live. A number of years ago, somebody wrote this little essay, a little sentence or two that's become very well known. It says most of what I wanted to close with today. You've heard this, I'm sure, but listen here. He says, here's a man who was born in an obscure village, the child of a peasant woman. He worked in a carpenter shop until he was 30, and then for three years he was an itinerant preacher. He never wrote a book. He never held an office. He never owned a home. He never had a family. He never went to college. He never put his foot inside a big city. He never did one of the things that usually accompany greatness. He had no credentials but himself, while still a young man, the tide of popular opinion turned against him. He was turned over to his enemies. He went through the mockery of a trial. He was nailed to a cross between two thieves. His executioners gambled for the only piece of property he had on earth while he was dying, and that was his coat. When he was dead, he was taken down and laid in a borrowed grave through the pity of a friend. Such was his human life. But he raised from the dead. Nineteen centuries have come and gone, and today he is the centerpiece of the human race and the leader of the column of progress. And listen to these famous words. I am within the mark when I say that all the armies that have ever marched, all the navies that were ever built, all the parliaments that have ever sat, all the kings who have ever reigned, put together, have not affected the life of man upon this earth as powerfully as has that one solitary life. And that is true, but there's more. There's more. Not only is he the great leader, the greatest man who ever walked this planet, he is the Savior, he is the mediator, he is the revelator of God, and he is ours if we come to him by faith alone. Folks, it never, ever gets better than that. I hope you know that, Lord and Savior. Father, we come before you now thanking you for what we've looked at today in these opening verses of Hebrews. Wow, how this sets the agenda for this powerful epistle. But more so, Lord, it sets the agenda for us to step back and take a good look at the greatness of, a, of, of the Son. Lord, I, I know there's people in this room that don't know you as Savior. I don't know who they are necessarily, but you do. Father, may this day be the day they say, I, my life has come unglued. I need that one who purifies and sustains the one who saves. Bring them to you, Lord, even this morning, I pray. And for all of us, Lord, as we work our way through these troubles and issues of life, help us, Father, to draw near to you because of the blood of Jesus Christ. For it's in his name we pray. Amen.